welcome back to Find You Picked on the Up Nerd Podcast Network. I am the Uneven Flow. I am not alone. I'm joined by my co-host, Abby. Hello, I'm Abby. And co-host, Basil, who is still somewhere around. The cats are here. The cats are fine. Incidentally, the cat in the movie we will be discussing today what is fine. What movie is that? It is a movie with a cat. The cat is fine. The Just name of the movie you, is Alien. It is can, 1979 classified as horror. We'll get into that later. Science fiction film. A classic. The important why thing I, is the, the cat's fine. Why I picked it is you had not seen this film before. Correct. It is an important movie. It is, it has created essentially almost a genre around it. So it has created a franchise with a startling number of similarities, as if we've talked about this before with another franchise, which we'll get into, but yeah, you hadn't seen this and I considered a very important film. I also consider it one of the best movies of all time. Nothing is wasted in it. It is a masterclass of creating and maintaining tension and things not happening, but that not being an issue, it never drags. There's downtime, but that downtime is purposeful. Yes. It is all in service to the film as a whole. It reminds me so much of other stuff. It reminds me of the two most notable things I always think of when I think about Alien is Mad Max Fury Road, where every object is not wasted. There's a reason for everything on screen. And then the other one is Breaking Bad, which is a television show, but also a masterclass in maintaining tension despite downtime or sequences of no dialogue or no noise. There's no dialogue for the first six minutes of this film. Don't need it. No. Everybody's sleeping. Yeah. Speaking of which, Alien is the story of a cat captaining his mining vessel. And against all odds, the cat is able to overcome his captors and a xenomorph and return home. It's beautiful. No, wait, sorry. My earpiece is right. Sorry, Alien. He's a good boy. Alien is the story of Josh Allen, who came to Earth to embarrass other quarterbacks. Nope. Try again. Other earpiece, honey. Oh, hang on. I have a third earpiece here. Our our producer is whispering something with his tiny paws. Our producer is screeching loudly. Cupped around his tiny little mouth. So Alien is the story of a mining vessel, the Nostromo. For anyone who hasn't seen this, just watch the movie. Yeah, go, as somebody who has not seen the movie, go watch the movie. One of our viewers put it an experience, and they are correct. I have heard you say that it was, quote, enthralling. I don't know where I heard it. Some sort of earlier record, anyway. Yes, it's almost like this is our second take at this, because I was very bad at the first take. Uh, No, it is quite enthralling. If you haven't seen Alien, feel free to to keep listening to this podcast, of course, but also feel free because we're getting into a spoiler zone. And just having been alive for the past 37 years, but having never seen Alien, there are some things that I know that made it into the cultural zeitgeist, that made it just as part of our culture. So I know about the chestburster scene. I know about what the alien looks like and things like that. But there were some things in this movie that I did not know. So if you don't want that to be spoiled for you go ahead and just 
you could just keep this on repeat for the whole two hours. That'd be great. And then just come back at this timestamp. But uh, no, I need them to download it each time. I need the downloads true. here, people. That's true. Now, if so, you could just download this on every mm-hmm. device you own, yep. then take other people's devices, mm. ask to borrow people's phones on the street. No, anyway. So that would really be ideal. And then you just give yourself a, a little like break, a little nice, like, good job. I deserve a little break. I'm going to go watch Alien. And then you come back and you listen to us because we're getting into spoilers in three, two, one, go. We already did. So then Stromo is a mining vessel. It is a blue collar crew, which is very important as we'll get into, but they're just miners. They're awakened on their return trip after performing the mining. They're on their way back to earth. It turns out they have to divert to answer a distress call or see what seems like a distress call. They're required to check it out. They go to a planet, egg hatches, somebody's face gets hugged. Kane, by the way, played by John Hurt, who would reprise his role in Spaceballs and also have the same thing happen to him. So they bring everybody back. They're on the Nostromo. The chest burster comes out of John Hurt. And from there, yeah, it is a tense sort of chase or cat and mouse, or in this case, cat and xenomorph. Oh, she's the cat is fine. Yes. Jones survives. Jones is the real hero here. He is, actually. But in any case, though, they, the crew gets systematically picked off, leaving only Ellen Ripley as the survivor as she is able to jettison the alien into space and uh, fry it gir? with engines. Uh, girl? There's a bunch of that. There's a bunch of things against trope. I mentioned yep. the reason this movie works and... It works as not necessarily your standard horror film is these are not your usual dumb orny teenagers in the woods. It's just a bunch of miners. They're regular people. Yeah. They're very good at their own jobs, but they're not superheroes. They can't do everything. There's an incredible line, which I think is probably overlooked. But when they crash land, well, they don't crash land. They land to go check out the quote-unquote distress call and that it messes the ship up a little bit because it's they they had a rough landing it's a new planet in theory we don't know if humanity has ever contacted another alien race before so this could be first contact we don't know so there's some excitement there because it's not like a universe where oh there's vulcans and there's other aliens and we're all part of a galactic federation like no we know that there's humans and that's about it so this could be the first time an alien species is ever encountered. And if they have the ability to send out a distress call, that's one of the, uh, that's one of the markers of finding intelligent life. So that's interesting. But there's a line where they set down the ship's kind of futzing and it's very analog. Everything's got wires and to rewire something, you have to like physically go get some wire and, and put in new wires and then connect up those wires somewhere else. The two guys who are mechanics of the crew who are complaining that they might not get as much money as the other people because they're just mechanics, which is very interesting and good. I think it really helps ground everything in, in humanity. When they crash land and they say it's going to take about 25 hours to get the ship up and running again, Ellen says, OK, well, I'm going to come down there. And then off the just to themselves, they're like, well, what is she going to do when she gets down here? Right. 
And we've all had that moment where, you know, our boss has been like, well, I'm going to hang on. I'm going to take a look at this. And it's like, well, what are you actually going to do? You don't actually know how any of this works. What are you going to do? Like, you're just going to come down here and be like, oh, huh? Well, Parker and Brett are also probably a little concerned because it's only going to take 18 hours, they had stated initially. So, well, the futzing of the numbers probably doesn't help, but yes. No, but the futzing of the numbers, you have to do that because if they had said 17 hours, you, everybody's had that boss who's like, give it to me in 20. It's no, we needed 25. So it's okay. We'll do it. And we need 17. We'll tell them it's going to take 25. They're going to say you got 20, mister. So the movie came out in 1979. We watched the director's cuts, which was put together in 2003. And it is very against type in general. I mentioned it's very against trope. Although a lot of these things would become tropes in in and of themselves because of this movie. But there are things like that in terms of it is very worker centric. The corporation in question Mm. in this Wayland Utani is not your friend. And this is at a time when corporations and everything were our friends. They had our best interests in mind for us. The, the, The feeling was very different in growing up in the 80s. Yeah. Once you work for the company, you get your pension and everybody's happy. They give you a nice, they give you a nice watch. You'll be compensated for your hard work, mm -hmm. checking out that distress signal and maybe dealing with some alien stuff. So it's important to note too, that the film features a traitor in the corporation in general, but because of that, there are two, there's first of all, the ship's AI, which is mother. And second of all, there's Ash, who is, it's revealed, an android from the company. And this was all a setup to capture a xenomorph. Everything, including the entire mining mission and everything else, was managed by Wayland Utani in a attempt to bring back the perfect organism. So they know things about it, or certain things. We as the audience know nothing, and of course the mining crew know nothing. So when they do things that we perceive as maybe not the sharpest or something like that, it's at least understandable. It's not the horror stuff of, I can run in one direction to the military base, or I'm going to go left into the abandoned cabin because I think I'll be safer there. I don't really like horror films. I love horror video games because I control and i have common sense so in horror films i find that a lot of the very stereotypical stuff is we just throw common sense out the window like we're going to run through the woods instead of all getting into the car and leaving that is counted for here to a certain extent the other thing that helps it transcend that that sort of horror tropes because there are things that happen that do not make common sense so for example when what's his face gets face hugged After going in, yeah, him, face hug man. After he gets face hugged, he's, they can see it. It's not even like he's a sleeper. It's not like he's the guy who's been bitten by a zombie and he's trying to hide it from everybody. No, he's out. They had to drag him back to the ship. He's got a face hugger on his face and it's through the glass of his spacesuit. And it's, that is a bad idea. It's just a bad idea. They should have just rolled him up in the carpet and just left him there, give him the old salute. And then he can be the, the first guy who ever made contact with an alien species and they can just remember him forever. But no, they bring him back to the ship. 
the two other people, so it was a, like a landing party of three, the two other people Dallas who were with him are understandably upset because it's their friend, right? They've been through, well, at, at the very least, it's their work colleague, right? You wouldn't want your work colleague, if there was something you could do, to just die on an alien planet because his face had been hugged. So it's understandable that they would be scared to stay in the airlock for 24 hours for quarantine, which they absolutely should have done. It's understandable that they would be freaking out. They want to get him to a med bay. It's understandable. It's very human. It's also very human that Ellen Ripley, who is not necessarily the main character at this point, is the one who says, no, I'm sorry. We are keeping you in there. I am the captain as part of that landing crew. Captain gives her a direct order to open the pod bay doors, hell. It should be <laughs> noted open- the captain and the first officer are on that. Ripley is the second officer, but when both are off ship, she's in yeah. charge. And yes, she wants to leave the airlock closed and leave them in quarantine for 24 hours. Should also be noted the scene later, we watched the director's cut. The scene later with Lambert hitting in retaliation for wanting to leave them out the airlock, which she, or sorry, leave them in quarantine, which she completely should have done, by the way, and does try to. The scene where Lambert attacks her for it is not in the theatrical movie, which is a weird kind of, it's one of the scenes that I agree should have been in the final one, but I am not Ridley Scott, so... I forgot. Lambert is a woman, incidentally, because it, it makes a difference in my mind. Well, about but, that, Lambert is also, I don't want to say canonically, I'm not sure, but Lambert is one of, she's got to be one of film's first trans characters. So Lambert really? was born male. Yes. Uh, Dallas as well, I the captain. In supplementary content, Dallas was born female. Dallas is the captain in this hmm. film. But that has been excised, but what wasn't is Aliens, the sequel to this, which specifies that, yes, Lambert was born male. Really? That's very interesting. So when I say Um, this goes against tropes, that was another thing. Well, I didn't get that from the movie, so I would assume that comes from, like, other sources. But the point that I was... The sequel, yes. The sequel, yes. The point that I was very long-windedly trying to make was that Ellen Ripley is a woman. Ellen Ripley has common sense. Ellen Ripley does the correct thing. And then a man overrules her. The first uh, science officer, Ash. Well, not really a man or as a robot. Well, but identifies, presents as male, right? It's 1979. We didn't have a vocabulary for this. Robot. So we got to put things in contemporary terms. So, and a man overrules him. He just opens the door. And I, at the time, I'm thinking to myself, like, what are you, an idiot? But it also makes sense putting it in a 1970s, early 80s period where it's, of course he is. He's a man. He's going to overrule a woman if he wants to. And there's not really a whole lot you could do about it. Turns out that was the wrong path my thoughts should have taken. But As your thoughts usually take. But that is a thought that would have been... And to a certain extent still is, I don't know, 35 years from now, but, oh man, it's been almost, it's like closer to 40. Okay. So 40 years from now, maybe that's not a thought that future generations will have. Maybe they'll see, maybe they'll get that he's bad egg a little bit easier than I 
would have, even though you told me about it way before and totally spoiled that for me. Uh-huh. But that was one of the things that I did not know about growing up with just getting alien from the environment. I didn't know he was the science officer was a robot. I didn't know that the science off. I didn't know there were robots in alien. I knew about robots and alien later on like Prometheus or whatever. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say aliens because yes, no, it's also because I've never seen, I've never seen any of that. Yeah. So I know the Michael Fassbender robot type thing. I didn't know that robots existed in alien 1979. So no, was... it, there's no clues that there might be. So when the robot is discovered, they know what it is. They're not like, oh my God, what is this? They go, oh my God, Ash is a robot. And that's a thing that apparently exists in their society. So that's more world building that hasn't been like directly spoon fed to us. It's it really is enthralling. It really it feels very natural. It doesn't feel like, oh, my God, he's a robot because we had to shove a robot into our science fiction film. Yeah, the world Um, building in this is subtle. And again, that's why it reminds me of something like Fury Road and Breaking Bad, too, as well. But to go back on both themes you touched on there regarding androids in the alien universe. First of all, the director hated the, sorry, the director was Ridley Scott. I meant the Mm. script writer, hated the idea of a traitor at all, which I think the movie doesn't work as well if Ash is not duplicitous. Exactly, because then he's just a man overriding a woman's orders. There's that also, I think, in terms of if he had built the scanners to work correctly, it doesn't work as well because then he's crappy at his job. It mm. makes the sequences and things involving mother work less well because essentially mother has an agent on board the ship. Mother is the AI on the Nistrolo and essentially Ash is acting as her proxy. I don't think it works as well without that. Yeah, Mother is the AI construct that runs the ship. It's the voice of the corporation, if you will. So she runs the ship. She keeps the lights on and determines and when to or not self-destruct. Yeah. Once self-destruct has been initiated. She is but an atrocious she... speller, it should be noted. The Mother cannot spell worth a damn. How's that? There's a ton of different spelling errors on her. Okay. She's very bad. So well. There was that aspect, and then you touched on Michael Fassbender. That is in the Alien prequels Mm. slash sequels. My issue with that is there's a nihilism to them. So there's another host that I'll be on, top three, bottom three, and presumably at some point find you pick at some point who hasn't appeared yet. But we've varied views of the prequels. There is a nihilism and a darkness to them that I do not enjoy. And I am somebody who reads and enjoys Punisher Max. There's just a a lack of any sort of form of positivity to them combined with they very much follow the established formula of the first Mm -hmm. two films in this series. And they are... Similar, similarly to Terminator 1 and 2, the sequels to this franchise as well as that franchise very much stand on the shoulders of the first two and never, ever do anything to either A, elevate, or B, vary from that template. 
but they keep and in the Yes. And in the end, they all just collapse. And in mm-hmm. the end, it just feels like you have these two movies that are worth watching. And then if you really love them, you can dig into the others. But frankly, it's best if you consider them non-existent or non-canonical even. We have it's Wikipedia just... now. You don't have to watch Alien Resurrections. You could just yes. learn about all the stuff that's in there. You don't have to watch Alien versus Predator, which is itself wild. Alien really, it is, as you say, a horror film, but it is at its heart a slasher fic, right? There's a serial killer on board and it's just pure evil. It just, it's I admire it for its purity. It's more I, of a monster movie. It's, it's more a monster of, movie. It's, Jaws. it's a monster it's, movie. It's the mummy. It's the invisible man. It's the werewolf. Werewolf. Um, it's a werewolf. It's just that, but it, it's in a league of its own. It defies genres. It is so far above what we would consider a monster movie or a horror movie. And yet at the same time, it is the platonic essence of both of those. It's, it is a masterclass. It is enthralling. It's one of the, I don't like watching movies. I like watching TV. I don't really like watching movies, but it's two and a half hours or so that I was just glued to the screen and invested and entertained the whole time and everything. There's some of those tropes again, but you can, you, the viewer can explain them away. Like it, it makes a kind of sense here still in 2024 that we would look back at a movie from 1979 and see a man override a woman's direct order just because yeah what a film it's interesting too because they're minors and because the nostromo is not the most up-to-date vessel newest technology blah 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 they do not have the means to take out the xenomorph really there are weapons make did Brett make that cattle prod thing? I think yes. the implication is that he made it. Yes. So he just put that together. It's like, it okay, should we be gotta, noted they do have a box of scraps. They do have weapons on board that are projectile weapons or things like that. The issue with that Before is for mining. Yes, but there's also actual weapons on board. They do not want to penetrate the hull, nor do they know anything about the Xenomorphs, nor mm. are the majority of the crew trained whatsoever. In how to also, use these things. It's blood may be acid and that eats through the hole. So you can't just shoot a bunch of holes in the thing. Yeah, that was a really nice sort of setup. That was suggested by somebody working on the film. And when I say working on the film, it wasn't the script writer nor director. Mm-hmm. And it's like the gaffer or something. It's a really good idea to prevent that. Whereas you could normally say, that, well, okay, fine. Why don't they just shoot it or something like mm-hmm. that? Well, if they do that, the acid could potentially leak through the outer hull and you die from decompression anyway. Yeah. You shoot it, very possibly everybody dies. You don't shoot it, very possibly everybody dies. You let the cat take it out. Everybody wins. You know, you try to track it. You have a cattle prod. Maybe you can get it. They want to put it in a, oh, that's, oh no, that's right. It's not the full alien yet. They're trying to track the head crab thing. The little thing that shot out of facehugger, John Hurt's chest, the the chest burst. Oh yeah, sorry. Initially, yeah, a chest burster, and then yeah, it should be noted. So the xenomorph goes through its lifespan exceptionally quickly, and when we meet it in the end, it has curled up to die at the end of the film. Yes, it's. I thought it was just like sleepy because it's been through a lot. 
Yeah. It's not made exceptionally clear, but the coloring on it is slightly different. There's good sort of breakdowns on this that it's a little more gray than it was the black we see it. And so, yeah, it's meant to be near the end of its life. This is also why it doesn't immediately chase after Ripley. Mm. It just wants to sit and die. It's only when it gets annoyed that. So it's like a a mosquito where it's 24 hours. That's what you got. Yeah. And Mm. Ripley still does the right thing here because again, if she, there's a couple of instances in the movie that I really like, I'll get into the other one in a second, but she does the right thing here in terms of getting rid of it, because the last thing we should want as viewers, we may not necessarily know this completely at this point, but we probably have some idea is Waylon Utani getting any type of the xenomorph back. So by shooting it out of the airlock and mm. in theory, vaporizing it from the engines, so she's spoiler alert, doing the right thing. Once they figure out that something's up, that, the Wayland yutani Corporation, and I believe it's before they figure out that Ash is a robot and a traitor, there's that kind of quick line of like, oh, they probably want it for their weapons division. So, okay, there's more world building. This corporation's got a weapons division. That's not necessarily your General Mills company that just wants to make good old wholesome American sorghum. Is it? Or bring back rocks and minerals. Is it? That's, I feel That's like getting general... into like a Lockheed Martin thing. That's getting into General Electric. That's getting into DuPont Chemical Corporation. General Mills probably does have a weapon. It Let's probably does. No, anyway. It probably did. Who doesn't? Who doesn't have a weapons division, right? What kind of household doesn't have a weapons division at this point? But it's just one of those things. So like it's, they know what's going on. They know that it's up to them and they know that their resources are limited. They do not know what they're up against because it hasn't started, I'm going to say, eating people quite yet. This is, I believe, before they, again, another trope, they split up. <laughs> they split up and think that they can catch the little thing in a net. Yeah. Which so, at that point, that's all the information they have, right? So, but it turns out the little thing grew up. So the other thing I note too is I mentioned that Ripley has a couple scenes and that was one of them where she exerts at least or managed to get back some level of control, which is a nice sort of element to her character. There's that, the killing of the, or disposal, whatever you want to call it, of the xenomorph at the end. The other one is another scene that doesn't exist outside the director's edition. And that is she kills the still alive Dallas and the turned into an egg Brett. The idea presumably being that the alien can reproduce itself by Brett, who was one of the engineer characters who was killed. He was the first to go after Kane. He's the All first to die. All we found was blood. All there was was blood on the floor. Yes. And then they, so, they assume that he's dead because they can't imagine anything else, right? He is dead. So Brett is transformed right. dead and he becomes a cocoon slash a new egg for the alien, mm-hmm. which presumably is why... Dallas is kept alive because like Kane, he will be infected by the facehugger when it emerges. But Ripley burns them both with the flamethrower. Again, this does not exist outside of the director's cut version, but it's another neat little nod to Ripley eventually being more of a action hero or she does things of her own agency. She is intelligent. She is shown to be quite capable. It's nice 
It's a nice change from a lot of science fiction. Frankly, at this point, now granted, this is, it was much earlier, but at this point, most of the women we have in sci-fi are either being rescued or answering hailing frequencies open, Captain, Mm. if they're lucky in an episode or saying, Captain, I'm frightened or... Mm. It was a little bit further than that, but funny you should mention On certain that. ones, yes. But man, at some point, TOS is going to appear on top three, bottom three, isn't it? There you go. TOS, the original series, Star Trek, the original series may, in fact, show up in this very podcast. Like this one right now that we're talking about, because I have, there's a wild rabbit hole we can go down. But no, you're right. So she has her own agency. She's not written to be a woman. She's not written to be a man necessarily. She's just written to be... What would somebody do in this situation? And it's very good. It makes sense. She goes back for the cat, man. Like, I would do that. You she wouldn't. Really? Would. You can make the point that, or case that, I guess the director has said that Jones was just on the way. She doesn't necessarily go back, quote no, unquote, she went back for to him, him initially. She heard the meow and then she was like, oh my God, Jones. And then she leaves and then she goes and finds him. Yeah, but she's also up on the bridge. There was presumably some more stuff to do potentially there too. I, mean, uh, I didn't read it that way. She I went back for the cat. Fine. In any she went case. Back to the cat. Cat's fine. Cat's fine. Cat's fine. Of note as well is that this is a horror movie, but it also, it has jump scares, which fair enough in space, nobody can hear you scream. And there is not that much screaming, but the, the screaming that there is quite effective and earned. This is a horror movie, and we know exactly what this thing looks like. They are not shying away from showing it. They do, though. The aliens, in this case, only appear for roughly four minutes of time Mm -hmm. in the entire film. So it's very restrained with it. Part of that was they didn't want people to know it was a person in a suit. Well, yes. So they do a good job of that, and doing so sparingly but it looks fantastic when it's on screen it does and the they few do shots they do they do a lot of close-up of it to do, again to prevent the feeling that it is humanoid in nature really at all and it is so good they i mean they have like a full body shot when we're first introduced to and you blink and you'll miss it but it's there they when brett's going to to find a cat because nobody accounted for the fact that there's a cat just running around, pooping and, and yelling and, and getting into things on the ship just freely when they use a motion detector to try and find something that is roughly the size of a cat, but that is not a cat. So Brett splits the party. Brett goes off to go find the cat. He finds the cat is fine. But there's this brief moment where we look up and he's in some sort of like reactor coolant thing. There's water raining down. It's apparently normal because he just washes his face in it and it's, it's he's not immediately killed by radiation. So presumably it's just normal and fine. And we pan up and there's just something weird hanging there that wasn't there before. Yeah. And it's just a split second. But it's that, just chilling that in it's the chains. He's just chilling out there. He's just waiting. And that's the first time we've seen the adult alien uh i don't know if we would have i recognize it because i have seen the alien from aliens all the time for the past 37 years i don't know if you would have recognized it necessarily if you were seeing this for the first time in 1979 right it could just be another part of the ship that is again very analog very 
It's also very dark, so he could have just been a shadow or something like that. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's like, okay, well, why are we panning back up here? We, as people who know what the alien looks like, are able to recognize the alien, at least in our kind of limbic brain. It really just, it's really just a split second shot, maybe two seconds, but it's there and the alien's fully there. And yes, it's dark, but it's, you can see it. And anytime they do a close up, it's, you see those jaws, you see the goop dripping from them. You see the, what is probably metal teeth. They do not shy away from it. And it looks fantastic what they do. The other thing that got me was very kind of David Lynchian in the sense that David Lynch will let the Mm -hmm. camera linger. on a scene and there's the part where the three remaining crew lambert who's the other mechanic parker parker lambert and parker are just 100 percent dead that has been confirmed sigourney weaver does an excellent job of conveying how horrifying that scene is with just a, a quick sort of she has a shudder when's the last time you saw somebody shudder in in disgust or fear on screen probably never she just shudders and it's a very visceral reaction, but she's identified that they're dead. Now that now it's a shuttle for one, baby. It's a shuttle for one and possibly Jones later on. The cat is fine. I shuddered through most of Transformers Age of Extinction. So I do remember shuddering quite frequently right, like, during a film. It's a shuttle for one now. She's the only one left. She can hear something and she goes to investigate it, even though she's already flip the self-destruct switch. She's like, the everything's going to go kaboom real, real quick. And she has very specific things she needs to do. But she decides that she's going to go check out this noise. And again, in a kind of Lynchian way, we are shown what happened to the people that disappeared and were presumed dead. They are dead. They wish they were dead. They beg for death, and so Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley kills them. But they are becoming a wall of flesh, if you will. This alien is is building something in the ship, and it's using, we don't know what, if we're using the genetic code or just literally the goobly bits of the crew to make this and shape it, but there's something going on here. And what is it? The captain is still alive and he says, kill me. And she kills him. She could have let the station do it, as you pointed out. But she makes the decision to do that, even though time is running out for her. But there's that shot of when we are looking at, I thought it was Brett who was in there. What I assume to be Brett's face. And Brett's face is melting and it is part of a wall now. And there's nothing, the only thing that's left that is human is the fact that we can recognize what a human being looks like and it looks like there's a human face in there. And I think the assumption is that was Brett. It was, but he's being turned into an egg. Well, yes, but don't shy away from that. They show that. It's well lit. You can see everything. It's horrifying. And it's, it's in the light. They're not just showing us half of one eye and everything else is in shadow on the captain when he says, kill me. And then we just have to assume that, oh, everything that's hidden in the shadow is so, so awful and terrifying. Like, no, the reality of it is actually quite awful, actually very horrifying. And they do not shy away from showing you that. We get a full scene, well lit, of what 
the inside of the ship that they were checking out that eventually leads to Ding Dong getting face hugged and starting off this whole chain of events, they show us the inside of that HR Geiger biomorphic designed ship. They show us the pilot alien. It's not hidden in fog or smoke. They show us the egg and what it looks like when it opens. And that's not good. I did not like that. That was goopy and gross. And I, it's every part of your human limbic brain is intended to respond to these things in a particular way if you are shown them. And so they showed it to us and our brains responded in that way. And that's why this defies genres. This is why it's so much more than a, a, a monster movie or a slasher film or a, a horror film. It's also not even really a basic sci-fi film or anything like that. Not even. It is very the different. Ship in a bottle. It's very different. This is the same year that Star Trek, the motion picture would come out and it had some level of influence from things like 2001 Space Odyssey, but it's not, and Star Wars, but it's like neither of those movies. It's closer to 2001 than it is to something like Star Wars, but it's just very different and i note that it came out the same year as star trek the motion picture because this isn't to bank on cgi or say movies are different but similarly to the dis discussion during die another day there's a weight to everything here because it's physical and not generated the alien, when it drops down, there is a weight to it that I don't get from some of the sequences in Alien versus Predator movies or the prequel sequels or things like that. When it's not just dude in a suit, there's also the ship itself. Yeah, you were saying it's get... like an eight foot model. Yes, I was going to get to that. Thank you. You're for welcome. Always interjecting my point to me. I'm always here to help. So similarly to Star Trek, the motion picture, the space sequences are models as well. And in the case of Nostromo, yeah, it's a gigantic model. In the case of Star Trek, it is, I think the Enterprise was three feet or so, something like that. It's a good size. No, it was larger than that. Anywho, they're dealing with huge physical models. And so there's a sense of weight and everything else to them. And this is despite the fact that, listen, I love this movie. I don't care that mother can't spell worth a damn. And I also don't care that the star field in it gets reused and all of the stars are in the same position in a bunch of shots, which as somebody watching Star Trek much later is very noticeable when another franchise doesn't do it properly, but it's fine. It works. And for 1979, it means all of the effects, including the alien, just have a timeless quality to them. I commented on this in relation to Die Another Day compared to Fury Road. And same sort of thing that everything has a weight to it. Like I say, everything feels real and feels like it's there. I just wish we could go back to that. It's almost. It almost sucks that CGI has become so inexpensive, but alternatively we get sequences that we never would have gotten had it not. It's a weird sort of give and take that I don't feel like 
it feels very, it feels like we haven't found a balance to it all that often. It reminds me a lot of the differences between The Matrix and The Matrix Reloaded, which is the second one, and The Matrix Revolutions, which is the third one. I used to know these things. Oh, we'll cut that out if I'm wrong. Matrix. We can't cut out every sequence where you're wrong or else we just won't have a podcast. I'm just one man. I can only edit out so much wrongness. Now, obviously, all of my stuff remains because I am a one-take wonder, but I'm just saying. You're correct. The, these objects have weight and a place in the frame because they are physically there. With CGI, you don't have to put a tennis ball on a stick to get the actor's eye lines to match up. You can know whether or not somebody's looking at the alien if they're looking at the alien because the alien is there. It's, you have to direct for that rather than direct it's funny too later on from a computer. It's funny too, because the writing has to reflect that too, though. So mm -hmm. you bring up the matrix and man, makes me want to do it sometime. The reason he is one of the most more derided sequences of those trilogy of movies is the frankly, poor CGI during the massive Agent Smith Neo fight. One of the things is, well, they can do that because of CGI. Well, just because they could, they never thought if they should, they could have just written around that. And that's something that one of the reasons why this film works, and it's interesting because the writer, I don't feel like had the best grasp of concept and the story and everything else feels like Scott did and some of the other people working on it. But in any case, like one of the reasons alien works so well is because everything is just written around the alien and it's written around the fact that we do not see it often. It's omnipresent despite the fact that we rarely see it. And just like mm. I've seen Jaws described the same way and it's really good writing that it's not I remember the interview with Ricardo Montalban and he didn't want to do Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. He didn't want to do it because there was so little time he had on screen. And he eventually realized as he read the script, no, every sequence he's not on screen, somebody's talking about him. He has so little screen time in that movie, but he's omnipresent. And the alien, alien and Jaws do it to a much better extent than that that it's just always there. You always feel like it could pop up at any moment. And despite the fact they don't do that, you mentioned there's jump scares in this movie, but it's not a jump scare film. The biggest jump scare I feel like we get, depending on your viewpoint, is either the chest burster, which, no. yeah, which it's pretty telegraphed. Well telegraphed. Yeah, no, it's totally <laughs> um, telegraphed. That's why I say arguably. Or I would say the biggest then becomes it's Jones popping out of the locker when they think they're going to catch the small xenomorph mm. chest burster or whatever. I'd argue that's the biggest jump scare of the film because the others all yes. become telegraphed. Like it, it drops down behind Brett fairly slowly. We yeah. see the shadow of it with Lambert. I guess the only others. I'm thinking the captain. When Dallas. he's in the, yeah, when he's in the But the again, it's tunnel. very heavily telegraphed. We but see a also, dot headed towards him. It is, but it's also very like you turn around and it's there and it goes, 
So that, like, that's a traditional jump yeah. scare. It I'm doesn't do say. anything to him either because it ends up taking him alive Well, as we, an incubator. I guess we only know that if you... That. Well, no, you don't know it at the time. You also never know that if you've only ever seen the theatrical film. So Was that part not in the director's, in the theatrical film? The There's no way is, that they kept the nest out of the... Yeah, the nest is not in the uh, theatrical version. There's no way. That's the best part of the movie. And an expensive part of the movie to produce, I would imagine. There's no way. No, there are cuts without it. So Really? Yeah, it's a weird uh, choice. Yeah, there's some odd choices. Now, to be fair, the director's cut contains sequences. Or, sorry. The director's cut has things cut out of it that were not in the original. I think there's another thing worth noting that was changed and this one we don't have a version of, and that is that Jerry Goldsmith did the score for this. We've mentioned Star Trek before. He's an important person to Star Trek, but he scored this film and he was not happy because he got Trent Reznor, which is his score to it was essentially eliminated. Apparently it was significantly louder in points. And he's gone on record since saying that it wasn't conveyed to him properly. This is his reasoning that were what the director wanted. But what's there works well because there's an awful lot of silence in this movie, which I think helps the tension. And a bombastic score would have really hurt it. So again, another sort of choice they made, and this time in a positive direction. Because yeah, the a loud moving Jerry Goldsmith score through this movie. Just doesn't work. Imagine the Voyager theme playing the entirety of this film. It just wouldn't Star work. Star Trek Voyager theme. Yes. I think one more thing we have to make note of is that there was a time in our imaginations that was before Alien and essentially H.R. Geiger's interpretation of what Alien is. And there is a time after it. And in the time after we get that idea that like, oh, an alien might be this weird H.R. Geiger type biomorphic biomechanical why wouldn't their ships be flesh ships and just weird weeping walls and there's that beautiful part where the egg is dripping upwards mm -hmm. in a way counter gravity there is the time after aliens where that's what we would assume at least in part an alien species might look like look an alien species might look like or might have and before that, there wasn't really that idea of it. And then nothing looks like Alien, except for everything that's trying to be Alien. Kind of. There's War of the Worlds, obviously, where the actual aliens themselves are, I would argue, somewhat similar in terms of design to this, as described in H.G. Wells' book. But in terms mm. of the ships and what we largely see of them, no. A tripods are apparently quite metallic and very much more like a giant robot uh, than alien like yeah nothing like the xenomorphs nothing like the it should be noted too the xenomorph is remarkably intelligent in this it knows to cut ripley off it knows places of egress and that sort of thing it's not stupid it's not a typical sort of monster movie monster it's not an animal as they find out themselves. And that's another thing that kind of works for it. We don't know the intelligence level. It's got a large head, could have a really large brain, that kind of thing. 
feels like all these years later, we still don't necessarily know how bright they are. Well, it's the problem we have with like dinosaurs and extinct species, right? Because you dig up one individual, if you're lucky, you get the whole skeleton of some dinosaur that we don't really know anything about. And it's the one that we have. And then we have to make generalizations about an entire species based on just that one individual. Like if they dug up my skeleton, they would assume that, oh, all humans were five foot six. or That's where we topped out, right? What if we could just clone the animals and we built some sort of theme park around that and coming soon on Fine You Pick, Billy and the Clonosaurus. Oh, God. I think as a last thing, and now I'm going to draw this out into 20 minutes. I think just as a last parting word, this movie cannot be separated from its artistic direction, which is... The director, it's the director of photography, it's the art department, it's everything, but it is also very much H.R. Geiger. And I believe this is the first time his work would have been made known. Like now everybody knows who he is. Yeah, it would have been just the guy. This made it a lot more public. Yeah, it's outside of if you were necessarily in art circles or something like that. I believe, yes, that, yeah, this is also the first time. Yeah. This stuff is weird and it is very weird and it is NC-17. And there's some of that in this. We didn't get into too much of the heavier themes, but that's not really what A lot of it was removed and it wasn't done intentionally so. Yeah. As in, there is a reason why Kane is the character who is forcefully impregnated. They wanted to intentionally avoid a lot of tropes and some of disturbing implications, we'll say. And again, this all works for the film's benefit mm-hmm. rather than against. So like, yeah. Again, yeah, it's, it everything is a, was it made is, with care. It is something that was made with attention and care, and it was made by artists. Art is not made by committee. Art is a vision. And you got to stick to that vision and you got to have it all in service of the vision. Yeah. So the, I, every step of this was art from the writing to the acting, to the directing, to the set designers, to the colorists. It is all a singular vision. That vision cannot be separated from H.R. Geiger anymore, nor can H.R. Geiger be separated from Alien. But it is something that we don't really see in big blockbuster movies anymore it's the attention and we to have the detail. covered films yeah. on it's... this podcast that for the most part and the vast majority of them will they're not there to make art they're there to make a whole bunch of money they're there to make aliens with a, a dollar sign for the s the attention I, I, it's, it's yeah. weird it's wild man it's wild it's an experience the attention to detail aspect is something that I mentioned a bit and die another day and it comes up here next week because I bring it up a lot with Breaking Bad where that is a series where everything in the background was meant to be potentially readable. And granted that part of that is because they knew we were entering an HD age and there were TVs that were going to be able to see it versus the same people or largely one person worked on the X-Files, which we'll be doing next week as part of top three, bottom three. But everything in the X-Files is not readable. And that was something that 
they didn't consider. But you look at something like Alien and the attention to detail, I mentioned it before, everything in the background that moves or is, it's generally thought of. There's a couple of minor things like spelling or... Yeah, but it's the corporation. Who knows? Maybe they outsource the translation. Apparently. Or the perpetual motion. I was also very tired and it's not like I studied the liberal arts and English for the better part of a decade. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Well, aren't so. you glad now that we watched Die Another Day? Because look at look at the legs it's got on it. So look at how much mileage we can get out. I'm of glad I James got to jump Bond, into Die Another Day. I'm glad we finally got to jump into a good movie. So in the end, I think we can agree. So far, I've had the greatest pick of this. Die Another Day. Yeah. I chose something that you hadn't even seen. And yeah. you used the words enthralled. So that's terrific. I mentioned this next week is going to be top three, bottom three of the X-Wiles. My one show. A film we have both seen. Uh, a TV show, in fact, that we have both seen. Yes. Yeah. My one show. My one thing. I X-Files to me is as the expanse is to you. And yet you were like, all these other things I know about. What? What could what could be the, the one thing I could talk about? I know X Files. So the idea is to choose something that'll be interesting to discuss and potentially interesting for it was my both one people show, to discuss. That was my one show. So it now is not I got to choose now I something figure. we know about. If we were choosing something I know about, we'd have Babylon Five, one of the, the Star Treks, Expanse. Well, those would be good the ideas. Punisher. There's a whole. Those lot. are not the ones that I've chose because I have taken into account the fact that you took you took my one show, you took my one show, and if you you took it and you had the, you knew it, and you had the chance, and now I've got to go through Pluto's free offerings and see what what absolute delights. Week after will be your return. Fine, you pick. You can choose to reveal it now, or you can choose to reveal it next week if you like. Well, I think it works for you. I think if you'll recall, I was the one who started the whole, we should talk about our picks at the end of the podcast. Cause it is, and as somebody pointed out, and as you pointed out also, it gives the viewer time to watch it. So I thought, all right, got to say though, alien threw me for a loop. I've had this pick in mind for some time but alien made me want to watch aliens but that is not going to be my fine you pick perhaps it will be in the future but i shall remind you that my last pick was james bond's die another day the best pick because look at how much look at how much content it's given us look at how much thought it's provoked but this film is near it's also an important film to me in the sense that there is a kind of foundational memory link to it i like die another day because it's just a popcorn for your mind you just toss it on i feel like this is a discussion it. you could have after you pick it and on the episode because i'm, I'm setting at that the point tone. you gotta I'm setting the explain tone. anyway sorry i was I'm just hoping we could end tone. the podcast sometime today not until i'm done i gotta edit this not until i'm done yeah you gotta edit it today too which so the year is 2003 i am 17 years old i am just an indoor kid. I like sports. I like martial arts. I like moving my body. But I'm also just a weird indoor kid. So I'm sitting in my parents' basement and we have PBS. We have the public broadcasting system network of channels. And there's 
a very interesting documentary on PBS and I sit down to watch it and I am immediately sucked in. I am 100% there. That documentary was a documentary called Jump London and it detailed the then nascent art form of parkour, free running. Five years later, that parkour becomes an integral part of the beginning of my fine you pick, which is Casino Royale, James Bond, Casino Royale. That's right. We're doing the one after Die Another Day. Oh, good. A good movie again. Written by the same people as also, Die Another boy, Day. Oh, finally got there. Oh, same boy. producers as Die Another Day. It's got parkour in it. It brought parkour to the masses. Before that, it was only just weird basement kids like me who knew what parkour was and were trying to jump around on our couches in the basements and getting weird yeah so weird ankle injuries your, from it your whole parkour for the masses thing would work a lot better if assassin's creed wasn't out by then so if i did not edit out that exceptionally long intro to abby's fine you pick i apologize to our remaining listener if you would like to reach out to the up nerd podcast network you can find us via email up nerd podcast at gmail.com what was that again honey you can find a little it, further into the mic with that you can find it on twitter at up nerd podcast you can find us on facebook up nerd podcast or just up nerd and that's once again honey real close to the mic get your thank you for listening get your lip smacks it's up nerd podcast plural with an s with an s at gmail.com i think am i correct i think that's yes. probably it and then it's you gotta, podcast get, you gotta get on facebook tune in and it's specifically for the sibilant s's and we have to give the people what they want and it's up nerd podcasts or at up nerd podcasts on twitter slash x so thank you for joining us please feel free to rate or review the podcasts feel free to recommend it to anybody and feel free to have a good day thank you your listenership is appreciated good night now bye